0: We are in the midst of a series, as you can see, uh, called Joy Full, in which we're walking through and studying uh, the book of Philippians, because in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book, has a lot to say about joy. He talks about it in all situations. And so far in our series, we've really took an overview in the first week. And then uh, the last couple weeks, we've looked at chapters one and two, and we've talked about uh, finding joy through our our humility. We've talked about finding joy through perspective. And today we're going to look at chapter three, as Paul talks about uh, having a joy that is related to our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. And so Philippians chapter three, uh, we'll start in verse one. You can follow along on the screen or, uh, or in your Bibles or in your Bible apps. Philippians chapter one or chapter three, starting in verse one. Paul writes, "Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you." Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Uh, There's quite a bit packed into even just these few little verses. So let me just give you a little bit of context here. So Paul, the man who is writing this, is a Jew, uh, and the church that he's writing to, by this time, in the uh, kind of the scope of things, in the scope of, of the spread of Christianity, he's writing to a church in Philippi that is split between Jews and non-Jews, not split necessarily divisive-wise, although that was happening in a lot of churches, and I'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but there were it was a group of both Jews and, and non-Jews, or as we sometimes call them, Gentiles. And when it comes to the beginning of Christianity, if you remember, you go back to the kind of the genesis of Christianity, um, so much of it was built into the Jewish faith. And so you've got uh, Jesus was a Jew. His first followers were Jews. Those who first heard the message of the resurrected Messiah, those were all Jews. And for a time, Christianity was kind of seen as kind of an offshoot of Judaism, that it wasn't really for people other than Jews. It was mainly for the Jews. But then as news began to spread and churches began to pop up in different places, and as people like Paul traveled around to different cities and different places and planted new churches, non-Jews started to respond to the gospel. And Gentiles, as we often refer to them, which you and I would all fall into, we are all non-Jews, started coming to the church. And it was amazing. It was great. This is God's design, is that the church would, would grow beyond just uh, Jerusalem and, and into the, 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 the rest of the world and be preached around the world. But it was also very messy. Because many of the Jewish Christians basically, basically said, whoa, 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 hold on just a second. Um, I, I know you want to become Christians, and that's all good and well, but really you need to become Jews before you become Christians. You you can't just get Jesus. You have to get all the Jewish rituals, and you need to to follow Jewish law. You know that's inside the first five books of the the Old Testament, and and, and you know God's first covenant with His people. And so basically, they're saying no, 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 no. You you can't just throw that away. You, you you've got to take all of this. You can't take that away. You have to buy into the cultural norms that are that are part of our Jewish heritage. You have to make your diet kosher. Uh, you have to be circumcised. All of these things. Uh, were, were, were part of what they were saying were required to become Christians. And and it was driving a wedge between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, and it was driving non-Jews away from Christianity. And remember, Paul has just gotten through, if you were with us last week or if you've read through the book of Philippians, Paul has just gotten through in chapter 2 talking about being of one mind and one spirit and about humbling themselves, humbling ourselves and putting the interests of others above themselves. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in Him. Find your unity. Be unified in Him. And I'm going to keep reminding you of that because it's a safeguard for you. It is a safeguard for you. And then he moves from saying this is a safeguard to then telling them what they need to guard against. He says, you've got to watch out for people who are going to pollute and pervert the good news and make it about what you need to do whether it's circumcision or these rituals or being a, you know, following this path and these rules and the Old Testament law and all of these things that they were putting on top of knowing Christ and being in Christ. Because here's one of the biggest joy killers when it comes to our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's this, trust in how good you are. And he's saying you need to be careful with those people who are pushing this agenda because it will kill your faith and it will kill your joy. If you want to kill your joy when it comes to your faith, if you want to end up guilt-ridden and nervous of whether or not you've done enough, then just base your faith in how good you are and in the things that you've done. And I think Paul is writing this not only because there's a group of people who said you know, you've got to do all these things and, 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 and follow all these Jewish rituals and, 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 and do all these, uh, you know, follow all, all these guidelines before you're allowed to be in. And, and that's part of why he's writing it. But it's not just that, that they were trusting in, in how good they were and, and, and doing all of these things. It's that all of us really kind of default to this. I mean, you just think about how we operate. Even if you were with us in class, one of the things that we were talking about this morning is is kind of we, we expect that if we do the good things that we'll be rewarded in a good way with things going well for us because we just kind of look at what we do and try to validate ourselves through that. And that's not just Christians, right? I mean, this is across the faith spectrum, even those who do not profess a belief in Jesus Christ. I mean, I've talked to uh, agnostics who, you know, when, when, you, when you talk to them, basically an agnostic is someone who says, I don't know. It's just a fancy way of saying, I don't know, right? Um, I, I don't know if there's a God. There might be, there might not, but there's no way of you knowing. Some agnostics say, in fact, I'm so sure that I don't know that you can't be sure about what you do know. And it's just a, it's confusing in some ways. Uh, but even agnostics will acknowledge and say, if you say, well, what's, what's kind of, what makes worth, life worth, w- worthwhile? What is the point of life? Well, in the end, it kind of comes down to what you do. Don't treat people unkindly and don't infringe on someone else and just basically be a good person, right? And then there's kind of a hornet's nest of, of things to, to dissect there of what that actually entails and how that. But in the end, it comes down to what you do. A- atheists are, are kind of fall under the same um, same idea, Right? To, to an atheist, what, what, what is it that defines life? And, and well, you kind of just be a good person, right? Do, do the best you can, be a good person. It's all kind of wrapped up in what you do, even for those who have no faith basis or no faith background. We focus on what we've done. We focus on what we do and we wanna validate ourselves by that. But specifically for Paul, this is a big problem in the church. It's a big problem today in our churches, and it was a big problem then for Paul, which is why Paul is fighting so hard against it, against this mentality that says, I'm going to trust in how good I am, and if I do the right things, if I check the right boxes, then I'm, uh, then I'm good, then I'm gonna be okay. But that is a joy-killing faith. That is, in the end, a joy-killing faith, and Paul knows this, which is not only why he's pushing back against it, but also why he kind of indulges in it, for at least just a moment. And he says this, he says, tell you what, you, you wanna play that game? Okay, fine, I'll play that game of, of how well we follow the rules and, and, and how well we fit in. Listen to what he says next in verse four. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultness, faultless. Now, maybe for us in our 21st century eyes, we, we don't necessarily compute everything that he's saying there, but basically Paul is laying out his spiritual resume. And he's like, you want to talk about being good enough and doing Enough. then let's just compare resumes. For starters, spiritually, I was born for this. Like my, my heritage, my ancestry, I was born for this way of thinking and operating. Basically, maybe we might compare it to what, you know, I grew up in the church. I, I know all the right language. I know all the right things to say. I know, you know, my background is in then he starts talking about hard work and about the ways that he studied and the ways that he fought and the things that he stood for and everything that he did and he lists all out all the things that he could trust in and he was good uh, you know how good he was as a Jew then look at what he says in verse seven but whatever were gains to me all of that stuff it's not necessarily bad stuff in and of itself but he says whatever were gains to me I now consider loss for the sake of Christ for a Jew, there was no comparing with Paul's spiritual resume. It's the creme de la creme of Hebrew religious re- resumes. But Paul says if you think that's what constitutes my faith, if you think that's what my faith is made of, then you've missed it. And sure, I you know, I used to think that those things were, were, were something you know worth bragging about, something to hang on to, but now they're worthless because of what Christ has done for me. He keeps going. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Quick reminder, this is a guy who is writing from prison to this church. He literally left behind this amazing heritage of faith and all the respect that he had. And now he's being persecuted, he's been put in chains, he's been uh, beaten, he's been jailed, and he's writing, and he really has lost everything. Like, sometimes we're like, yeah, I mean, I've lost a lot. He has lost everything from a worldly sense. But he's not done. He goes on to say, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, not only are those things worthless, but it's garbage. Some translations say refuse, dung, trash, rubbish. I like that one because you can say it with an English accent. Rubbish, right? All of those things. All of those things are absolutely garbage. In fact, it's probably stronger than that, but we've got to keep it PG because we're in, in church, right? He's basically saying that if you put your faith, if you base your faith in trusting in how good you are, that's sewage Spirituality. If you've got a checklist of saying, yep, I, I got to church this week and 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 yep, I, I, I did this and, and I did that and and, and I checked my I, I'm good enough this week and definitely better than the guy down the street, that is sewage spirituality. He says you can flush it down the toilet, it does not belong in the church. Of Jesus Christ. Because this stuff, if we focus on how good we've been or on checking all the boxes and making about what we've done to earn something from God, Paul says that's sewage. It's garbage. It's dung. It's poop. Then listen to what he says next. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from being good enough, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says this is where we place our faith. This is is bedrock when it comes to what we believe in right here. As Christians, we don't place our faith in how well we follow the rules, because let's just be honest, we don't always follow the rules all that well. I mean, we like to think that we're, you know, better than some, but we, we don't get it right all the time. In fact, we get it, wrong a lot more than we'd like to admit. And even our closest attempts at following the rules come up woefully short. And God just looks at it and says, okay, well, you know, you've done done some quote-unquote good things, but you haven't even come close to measuring up to the standard None of you have lived in full alignment with what I wanted for you. All of us have rebelled against him and we've done it at times without realizing that we were making mistakes and we've done it at times when we fully knew well that we were choosing what was wrong and we knew it was wrong or we knew it was selfish or we knew it would hurt that person. None of us measures up. And so we don't trust in how good we are but rather the antidote to the joy killer of trusting in how good you are and becoming conceited in your faith or feeling like a fraud and wondering when you're going to be found out, the antidote to that is the joy filler that Paul says right here. Trust in how good Jesus is. You don't trust in how good you are. You trust in how good Jesus is, that I base my faith on the righteousness of Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, as a church, we believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And he was God in the flesh, fully man, fully God. We believe that God not only made the world, but that he joined the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life. How did he do that? Because he was fully aligned with God's will for his life. Everything God wanted him to do, he did. Every single box he had to check, he checked it. He lived in complete obedience to every rule that god had for his life and not something to or or, or not to get something from god he didn't do it out of selfishness he did it out of selfless love but not only did he live the perfect life but he also died a gruesome and cruel death he laid down his life and even though he was innocent he was treated as if he was guilty And even though he did everything to be accepted by the Father, he was abandoned by his followers and left outside of Jerusalem like a a common criminal. And we believe that God, in the flesh, died. We believe that Jesus gave his life and he breathed his last and he said, it is finished. And he paid for all of our sins and won our forgiveness. But the good news doesn't stop there. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. And even though he was placed in a borrowed tomb three days later by the power of God, he gave that tomb back and walked out. We believe in a resurrected Lord. And this is what transformed the early church leaders who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And they saw him not just for a a couple of days or hours, they saw him for weeks And so their their faith was founded not just on some words on a page, which are are important, and I'm glad we have this, but it wasn't just some words on a page. But in the event of Jesus' resurrection that they saw with their own two eyes, and the same in some ways is true for us because His resurrection proves that He is Lord. It proves that He is Savior. It proves that what He says is true and that we can trust Him. We can trust in how good He is, and that's where we ground our faith faith, because that faith can't be taken away. That's a faith for everyone, everywhere that transcends any cultural barrier. And that's why Paul is pushing back so hard here, because when you make, you start to make less of the saving work of Jesus Christ, you are ruining what it means to have faith. And I know maybe in some ways, this seems like ABCs, but for Paul, this is A to Z. And for us, this is A to Z because to know Christ is to grow in Christ. To, to know Christ is to seek after Christ. And that's why Paul says what he says next, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. What do you want? To look good? To be good enough? Paul says, I Here's what I want. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says this, this is not just, it's not just that it's rooted in relationship, but it's this, this relationship has a, a powerful dynamic. First he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? It means that because we believe Jesus rose from the dead, our joy can't be taken away by the grave or the hospital room or the diagnosis. Because we believe that in the same way that he rose from the grave, anyone who is in Christ one day will be called home when God calls all of us home. And we believe that in spite of anything that's going on or anything this world can throw at us because we believe that there is life beyond this life. And so if Jesus doesn't come back before we all get put in the ground, when he says up, we're all going to be up if we are in Christ. But that's not just a hope for tomorrow, right? That's a power that can be known and lived in today because Jesus was raised by the power of the Spirit. I I love how Paul says this in a couple of different places. One of those is in Romans chapter 8 verse 11. This is not on your screen, but but he talks about how the the same power that, that raised Jesus from the dead, the power of the Spirit lives in you and me. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. That resurrection power is in us that we can know and seek Today, but on top of that, Paul says to become like him in his death. What does that mean? It it means that just as Jesus died, we also die to ourselves. We die to our old self. We die to our uh, to our spiritual resume. We die to our past mistakes and our, our past choices. We we die to the old self that says, I'm in charge. And then we are reborn through faith in Jesus Christ, to be a new creation to be a new person with the Spirit of God living in us. And that happens. We believe that happens when we are baptized into Christ. Now, we get baptized, we believe in the, the essentiality of baptism, one, because God told us to, right? And so we, we believe in Him and we want to trust Him and we want to be obedient to Him. But, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, uh, that, that when we are baptized, we are uniting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are buried with Christ, And then we're raised to walk a new life. That's part of what it means to be united with Him in His death. And then Paul closes this little verse by saying, to, to someday attain that resurrection that is promised in Christ. To know that one day, because of what He's done for us through His death, burial, and resurrection, we have certain hope of eternal life with Him forever. I mean, this section is the meat of what we believe, what we cling to, no matter what. This is what produces in us and propels us in joy. And that's what Paul says next in verse 12. I want you to notice the difference between how much he brags about kind of his old spiritual resume and his old life and how humble he is here. He says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And he says it again, just in case anybody missed it the first time. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus, There's a couple things that I think are important for us to understand about what he just said. First off, this is a guy who knows his word. He knows God's word forward and backward. It's a guy who had a vision of the resurrected Lord Jesus. This is a guy who planted churches. This is a guy who's preached in front of, you know, multitudes of people. It's a guy with so many spiritual accomplishments saying, I have not arrived. I'm not there yet. And if Paul hasn't, I haven't. And if Paul hasn't, you haven't. And so there's no living Christian who can say, yeah, I'm there. I've got it all together. I've arrived. I'm where I need to be. We can always be growing in Christ. We can always grow in knowing him more deeply. Jesus can still have more dominion, more rule, more reign over my life. I can trust him more. But there's something else that he says that I think is important for us to remember. Forgetting what is behind. Straining, striving for what is ahead. And I think that ought to be so comforting for so many of us. Because what's behind is a bunch of stuff that we're ashamed of. A bunch of stuff we wish wasn't a part of our life resume. A bunch of stuff we wish we could change. That we wish we're not a part of who we are and where we've been. And praise God that anything over your shoulder has been nailed to the cross. It's been paid for. Forgiveness has been won. There is new mercy for every single person. Person, But it's not just the bad things that you've done or the bad choices that you've made or the wrong roads that you've been down. It's also that over your shoulder are all of those accomplishments. And all of those, th- those things that we've done that we think, instead of you know, the bad things we think would disqualify us, it's all those, those accomplishments that we kind of rack up on our checklist that, that we think would qualify us. I, 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 God owes me something. Either way, we're not meant to look over our shoulder, bad or good, and think that that defines us. We're not meant to be rear-view mirror Christians because Jesus is calling us to look forward. We're called to believe that because redemption and, and, and renewal, Jesus is bringing those things in full. The best is yet to come. That doesn't mean there won't be hard times. It doesn't mean we won't have struggles. It just means that as we head into the future, we know there is more hope in Christ, and there is more of Christ that I can experience and know today by His grace. So what do we do with all that? I know it's a lot that I just gave you. Well, let me just give you three quick takeaways, and then the lesson's yours this morning. And the first is this. Maturity in Christ grows with our dependence on Him. Maturity in Christ grows with our dependence on Him. Listen to what Paul says right after this in verse 15. He says, all of us, then, who are mature— should take such a view of things. Again, for Paul, this is not ABCs. This is A to Z. This is it. This encompasses all of what we really need to grasp and hang on to. This is how we mature and grow. And if we find ourselves in this cul-de-sac where we're in our minds we're constantly looking over our shoulder. Maybe we did some things that, again, would disqualify us, at least in our own minds, about you know, what we've done or, or mistakes that we've made or choices that we've made and we don't think that God can forgive us. Or maybe over our shoulder we look back at accomplishments and, and things that we've done in our heritage and our faith and we say, well, my grandmother did this and my grandfather did this and I've got this heritage and I've got this faith and I've done these things in my life and things that we think would validate us. And we look over our shoulder at those things and think we've done enough to earn God's favor, favor. Either of those situations, Paul is saying, looking at us lovingly and saying, you got some growing up to do. If that's where you're putting your faith, or that's what you're allowing to get in the way of your faith, then you've got some growing up to do. Because maturing in Christ grows with our dependence on Him. And I know that kind of, maybe in some ways, sounds counterintuitive. Because if you're dependent, then you then you kind of have some growing up to do, right? If you're dependent on someone, then then maybe you're still not mature. At least that's the way we kind of process that. But here's the inversion of what that means for us as followers of Jesus. When we are weak, He is strong. When we recognize that we can't do this on our own, and we cling to and root ourselves in Him, then He is the source of our love and our peace. He is the source of our power. He is the source of our perseverance. He's the source of our hope. He's ultimately the source of our joy. And so the more we become dependent on Him, the more we, in fact, grow mature in Him. And you might think, well, that sounds good. I want that kind of faith. I just don't always know what that looks like. Listen to what Paul says next. Verse 17, join together in following my example brothers and sisters and just as you have us as a model keep your eyes on those who live as we do paul says okay you're you're not exactly sure you know maybe you're new in christ or maybe you've just had this identity in your mind of what life is supposed to be like in christ and it's kind of missing the boat or maybe you're you're basing it on how good you've been or or whatever it may be wherever you are you're kind of you you, you just don't know what it really looks like to really follow after jesus christ paul says okay Here's what it looks like to really treasure Jesus. Maybe if you can't grasp it in your mind, find other people who can. Find other people who follow Jesus well and follow their example. Here's the second takeaway. Maturity in Christ grows by following others who follow Jesus well. Now, our ultimate goal is to follow Jesus, right? But that's why we have each other too, is to help each other follow Jesus. And so if you're struggling with this idea, what does it mean to walk in, 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 a, in, a, in a life where I treasure Jesus above everything else? What does it mean where I put my joy and my faith and my trust and my hope and I, find, I, I make Him the source of those things? I'm not really sure. Find somebody who is, they're not perfect, but they're walking that out and follow them. Stop trying to do it all on your own. Lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ and find people who follow Jesus well and follow them. Stick with those people. Learn from those people. Watch those people. It is amazing to me that even though God could do any number of things when it comes to how to help us to grow, He has decided that in His kingdom and in His church, I'm going to use all of you To help shape and grow all of you. Because he's put his spirit in every single one of you. If you are in him. And therefore every single one of you. Can be used to shape and grow others. And as we continue to grow and and mature in Christ. Following the godly example of other Christians. Then we understand more and more. What it means to put our faith in Him and where we put our faith. And we understand that that kind of faith, that can't be taken away. It can't be eroded. That kind of faith produces a joy that can last through life. A joy that keeps growing and growing. Because the more I keep knowing Jesus and growing in Him, the more He keeps bringing me joy. And that kind of joy isn't going to be suppressed. It isn't going to be co-opted by one culture and one place, by one people. But it's a joy that spreads all around our communities and our state and our country and our world. And we pray and we strive in our mission as a church, as a church body, to help and grow followers of Jesus Christ, to make and grow followers of Jesus Christ. And we do that not so we'll just follow the rules, not so they'll follow the rules better, right? But so that they'll follow the one who followed the rules on their behalf. That's what we're about. That's our a to Z a uh, faith is to find ourselves rooted in Him. Because this joy has a trajectory. It, it's headed somewhere, which leads me to the third and final takeaway, and it's this. Maturity in Christ grows when you know how the story ends. Maturity in Christ grows when you know how the story ends. And so this is how Paul finishes the chapter, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring not just one, not just some, but everything under His control, He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Redemption and resurrection are coming in full someday. We don't just believe that Jesus came, we believe that He's coming back and that He will make all things right and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will be in His presence with a joy that will last forever and ever. That's the promise. That's the trajectory of our faith. And that is how joy is found. By clinging to Jesus Christ and trusting in Him.